Hello and welcome to another episode of Spotlight, uh, but not just any episode. This is a very, very special episode today um, because we've got a very special guest joining us. Um, director of The Omen, Superman the Movie, The Goonies and the Lethal Weapon franchise, Mr. Richard Donner. Uh, now, you may be asking yourselves what connection uh, does Richard have to Star Trek, as we are primarily a Star Trek podcast. However, we've always stressed that we are first and foremost students of film and cinema, and so how could we pass up the opportunity no to talk to a man who's had such a lasting impact on cinema as Richard Donner? Absolutely not. And we'd be remiss if we didn't thank uh, Mr. Bob Salin, uh, who was a previous guest on a supplemental before this. Uh, of course, you might remember as the producer of Star Trek II. Uh, Richard Donner's been a lifelong friend of his and was, you know, it was Bob's suggestion that he would try and set this up for us and he's come through in such a big way. Uh, so thank you, Bob. And also thanks to Amy Roy, uh, Mr. Donner's assistant, who took the time to try and schedule this in in what I'm sure was a very busy schedule. Um, to actually make time for us as well so thank you Amy and yeah when we spoke to Richard we had him on Skype um, beaming in from the States and we were able to see him in his office so we could see uh, quite a lot of little trinkets and treasure troves of all things and there are a few moments in the interview where he points a few things out and for the most part we kept them in because in the context of the conversations they come up and there's some great things and there are a couple that just kind of fell flat and we took them out um, but yeah, it's good just to hear him talk and to share his enthusiasm and love for what he does and what he is uh, surrounding himself with. Yeah, they're great moments, so we didn't want to cut them out. I should also mention that our friends over at the Diminishing Returns podcast, uh, a podcast where they look at sequel culture, is actually going to take on the entire Lethal Weapon uh, franchise, I believe, in one of their episodes coming very soon, uh, probably next month, I believe. So definitely head over to their podcast and check it out. They're on Twitter, at Diminishing Pod. Uh, it's a great podcast, really, really funny. Uh, so I recommend it to you. Although, I should stress, of course, <laughs> from our opinion, there are no diminishing returns when it comes to the peerless Lethal Weapon franchise. Absolutely. Yeah, Four gets a special shout-out today. Like, yes. It, 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 oh, it's a special place in uh, mine and Dempsey's heart, like, to be honest. Uh, we we finally give it the respect it deserves. Exactly. <laughs> We're people. not saying it's the best. We're just saying it is a fucking great film. <laughs> it is, and there'll be plenty more Lethal Weapon uh, news from Mr. Donner in this interview. So for now, take it away, Dick. Thank you very much for doing this, Richard. No, it's a pleasure. Pleasure. I think it's going to be a pleasure. Do you want us to call you Richard or...? Uh, no, Mr. Donner. Mr. Donner. Okay, no problem. No, no. <laughs> Dick, Dick. Dick. Okay, that's Love great. It. That's great. <laughs> Quality. Okay, well, we're just going to talk you through like some questions we've got. We're going to go right back to the beginning of your career, if that's okay. Okay, if I can remember. Okay, yeah. well, hopefully so. Well, uh, we'll give it a go. So, yeah, I'm just uh, to go through it. I'm Matt, and that was Liam just talking, and we've got Paul here as well. Hello. And, Matt uh, and Paul. Yes. We're really interested. Like you, you know, you, you began your career back in commercials and TV, uh, working on a ton of classic shows from The Man from Uncle and Gilligan's Island and The Fugitive. Uh, one of my all-time favourite shows uh, was The Twilight Zone, of which you directed six episodes in the final season, uh, including <laughs> arguably the most famous one, Nightmare at Twenty Thousand Feet, with the good old William Shatner. Um, oh right, right. Yeah, oh, good... uh, I'd love to know if you remember what it was like coming on to such an established show and working with Rod Serling, and how much creative freedom you had in your episodes. Oh, you know, um, let's see. Coming on to the show was simple because each one was an entity, with the exception of Rod, and um, therefore there was no carryover or demands. Mm -hmm. And. Um, it was uh, very much a pleasure. The producers were great, and they made your life very comfortable and uh, kind of left you alone. It was a fun shoot. That's why I did. I stayed with it for a while. Was was one of them the last? Uh, was some of the last episodes done for the show? Wasn't it? Was there was there a big sense of the legacy of the of the show coming on? You know what? Um, yeah, somewhere. Now that you bring it up. See if you can see see what this is. That's oh. Rod Zerling yeah. laying on the floor in front of a tombstone. <laughs> That's me uh, standing on the, 
the left, and on the right is William Froog, the producer. Uh-huh. It was the um, goodbye party to um, to the show. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. What was Rod, what was Rod like? Do you remember as a person? Uh, as a person, he was super. Nice guy, very bright, obviously. And he would just, um, you'd meet him for literally a few moments when you first came on to discuss what the series was, what he expected out of it, and then um, you would meet again at the very end where you would do a like a little hook, I think it was, mm-hmm. for the following show. So much in the way like Alfred Hitchcock presents, like he would be do the kind of bookends, um, yeah, it was that kind of format, but he would still have his hand in the kind of creative right. aspects, yeah. But he did it before Hitchcock. Ah. Yeah. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, Dick, is we're actually coming really close to Christmas now, and this episode of our podcast will probably actually be released around Christmas time. Um, now, every Christmas, Scrooged is definitely one of the things I pull off my DVD shelf to watch as a kind of Christmas classic. We all grew up with that film because yeah. we were all born in like the mid eighties. So that's a movie that we very much saw growing up on TV, freaking us out as kids and stuff like <laughs> that. Uh, Cause it's quite scary. Um, but I know that it's wonderful life is one of your favorite films. It's one of my favorites as well. And I was just wondering, for that reason, was it really important to you to kind of create another kind of festive favourite, as it were? No, no, no. I mean, you don't have any idea you're doing something that's going to be a classic. Um, You're doing a movie, and it was extremely well written uh, and uh, gave me an opportunity to do something that seemed like a lot of fun and a lot of fun to, to be in the process of making. Uh, I love the idea of working with Bill, and as we grew and the cast grew, they all became just wonderful, Bobcat, um, and uh, you finish the movie, and you cut it, and you put it together, and you run it for an audience, and then you hope it, you hope they like it, and then wow, bow, really takes off, and you start to see it every single Christmas. You'd never expect that when you make a movie. Uh, I mean, if you started out to do that, you'd probably screw up the film because it would yeah. take out all your instincts and start to perform from, um, you know, an educated level of what's right. It was a great, a great chance to, uh, it was a great script, as I said, so you had to, once you had it, you knew you could improvise. Bill Murray was that kind of a guy, still is, that his improvisational is what he is. He's a classic, and you can't hold him down. Yeah, I mean, he, he's he's fantastic in it. And, and yeah, he, he's very famous for his improvisation. You say it was a great script, but did you kind of let him loose in terms of improvisation on the film? Once we had the proper part of the film done, in other words, once you did a scene that you knew you had it and you could lock it in, then you gave them, or I always give them a uh, the actors a chance to improvise and come up with whatever they felt they could add to it and 90 times out of 100 there's always something good yeah so it's in the can but now we can play around exactly your ability to kind of switch genres in uh, in cinema going from horror to superhero would you say that's come born out of your time in TV where do you have horror the Omen, the omen. Oh, that was a mystery suspense thriller. Oh, okay, interesting. That's how you'd you'd classify it yourself. You wouldn't classify it as a horror. Well, I never did. I mean, if it was a horror film, uh, I don't think I would have done it, or certainly Gregory Peck wouldn't have. Um, no, we we looked at it definitely as a. I mean, that's how we got it made. Quite honestly, it um, it was originally written as you quote a horror film with devils and devil gods and, and, and demons of all sorts. And, uh, and um, when I read it, all of that seemed to be very heavy-handed and uh, left nobody guessing. It gave all the answers. So we eliminated all that and tried to treat it as 
just a, a terrible coincidental day in one man's life that's so <laughs> bizarre it drives him crazy yeah a bit like Billy Freakin with The Exorcist just treat it very matter of fact as if it's a, a day in the life right except we didn't bomb it up split pea soup <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, so from your opinion with The Omen, it's still meant to be very open-ended, so we're still actually not sure if he truly is a child of Satan or not. The very last shot of the picture is the child, and he turns to the camera at the funeral and slowly, slowly fights a smile coming on. And so now that's your interpretation. Why is he smiling? Is, did the picture not exist? Is this just a big joke? Or did he win? Is there really such a thing as a as a satanic human being? Um, and he won, defeated good? I don't know. It really is one of those pictures that our intention was to let the audience have their own ending. And I would guess that's one of the reasons why you didn't want to do the sequel, because you actually wanted that mystery to stay alive, as it were, rather than having to answer it. Exactly. And that all came from the genius of a man named Alan Ladd Jr. I assume we all know who Alan Ladd Sr. was. Indeed. One of the great actors. And Laddie um, came to London to see a rough cut on uh, The Omen, because he was head of the studio, who commissioned it and he never said much he's a man of very few words and um, and even when he says it he says I'm very low you have to lean in to hear him <laughs> and uh, as we, he never said a damn word about the film at, at dinner talk to him talk and as the dinner was over and we got up we were walking to our cars in London in full, on Fulham um, Laddie just turned to me and he said do you think the kid could live that's all he said. I said, oh, my God. Oh my, but I don't have the money. He said, I'll give you the money. And that was it. Because originally, the funeral was both for Peck and his son. And so um, out of the genius of uh, a studio executive came a really good ending. I think what he saw was also some commercial value in the fact that now he could probably get a sequel. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking. Yeah, so you actually, um, with the Omen, working with Gregory Peck, it wasn't the first time you've had a Hollywood A-lister, um, literally from your first time in TV, Steve McQueen. So from day one, you've dealt with the heavyweights. Um, how have you kind of like managed the egos? You know, in all the time uh, I've been making films and TV and everything, uh, it's really the uh, you ever ran into a situation with an actor where you had to handle him maybe a half a dozen times in my career. Most of the time you find that they want to make a good movie. There, I was an actor once and I realized the insecurities the actors have and I I realized that as a director I probably have more insecurities than they have. So between the two of us, um, there was always a nice road to work out any problems. And um, the more professional women were uh, the less problems there were and uh, it always was if I was in their shoes why am I saying this and uh, it, it's it's always worked for me one thing I wanted to ask you about uh, is Superman the movie um, because obviously we're living in a time now where comic book movies are, are the biggest money makers in, in Hollywood right now and that all started with your movie, Superman the Movie, and it's still considered a touchstone today. I mean, if you read an interview with a director about any big superhero movie, they always reference Superman the Movie, say, of wanting to capture that feel still. That's still what they're looking back to. How do you feel now that that's literally kind of so prevalent in Hollywood culture now, and you started that all with your movie? Well, I'm, I'm happy those people have good taste. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, look at again again if you didn't we didn't make Superman to make it an iconic film that that would carry on for years to come we made a movie we made a movie on a subject that 
we were all very committed to. And in a strange way, I took the job because they offered me a lot of money. <laughs> and, and because I I really felt um, these people didn't know who Superman was. And it was with great disrespect they were making the character, I felt. And I kind of felt like I had to defend them and that I had to go in and save them. And um, uh, you made, again, again, we made a movie. Uh, when we had the first screening for the public, uh, I was amazed how they reacted. I mean, I just, we just made a movie. And all of a sudden, there's got these wonderful, massive reactions. and Everybody seemed to love it. And then it became a bit of a classic and, and set a genre for the future. But you don't know that when you're making it. You don't even think that when you're making it. You're, you have an obligation to the studio that gave you the money to make it. You have an obligation to the characters you're bringing life, to the actors that, and to everybody who worked on the picture, because everybody puts their heart and soul in it. So you're trying to make a good movie, but never with the idea that it's going to carry on over another, have its own lifetime. I see, like, from day to day, you were kind of fighting almost on two fronts, though, with um, the producers, but also some people's ideas of what, uh, with a great anecdote about Brando wanting to be a bagel, and you basically having to, having to remind him that every kid since 1930 knows who Jarrell, what Jarrell looks like. So you you were staying true to your vision of it, but it wasn't an easy ride. Well, it was not only my vision, it was, it was the vision of Siegel and Schuster, who originally created it. And and it was ahead of itself in in the early thirties when it came out and it had its own sense of reality. I remember as a kid I'm reading Superman comic books and wow, I couldn't wait till the next issue to come out. It's kind of that's the way I approach it. It had its own reality. What we say is verisimilitude. It had its own sense of honesty, of reality. And Although it may have been bigger than life, of course, than the life that we are leading, uh, it had its own life, and the actors and everybody involved in it, the crew, effects people, obviously writer, um, had to find this little truth, and that's all we did. A good example of that is you cut from the Fortress of Solitude with the, the great shot of Christopher Reeve first flying, and then your next choice is a cut into inside a taxi uh, in a bustling New York or metropolis. And I think that choice of not going to a huge wide shot of New York City to set the scene, you go right down ground level amongst the, the termites. You know, that gives it kind of like a real feel straight away. And, and the sound from the whoosh of a cape to taxi horns in New York City. You know, it was, it was a double sense... Uh, auditory and visual transition. Prior to Superman the movie coming out, the biggest kind of representation of superheroes on the screen was the Bill Dozier uh, Batman 1960s TV series with Adam West. And that, I'm sure the studio must have pressurised you to move towards that kind of camp vision and you took it seriously and played it straight, which would have seemed like a massive dare for the time. Straight, straight within its own reality. Yes. Right, not ours. But go ahead. And, you know, if you don't make that decision to play it straight, that's why we don't get all of the great comic book movies that have come since. Everything. We don't get Marvel Studios and that universe. And uh, the Christopher Nolan Batman movies, certainly. Something like that, where they're, you know, playing it straight and taking it seriously within that world and making those things seem realistic within the world that they're playing. Well, you know, here's what I think happened. And I think it's happened to to motion pictures in general in that genre and that big visuals is that the computers come in. And nowadays with a computer, whatever you think, whatever you want to see, you can create. It just takes money and time. And um, 
it used to be you had to create it yourself. It had to be real. 99% of it was done live on a set. The uh, additional optical work was very difficult, very tedious, very long in process. So you, the idea was you did it, you made it. Nowadays, anything you think up, you can do. And so I think what's happened is, one, we've gone very dark. We've gone very little hope. Hope seems to disappear from movies. Um, they become very depressing and very dark and very. And there's a competition amongst a lot of these filmmakers about who can do the biggest optical trickery, buildings blowing up, universes dissolving, mental transitions that so that it's so easy to do that they're overusing it and it becomes to me an indulgence so um, I don't compare our film of that period with the films they're doing today I think the only good ones of those that were made were produced by uh, oh gosh I forget her name oh yeah Lauren Schuler Donner (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh, of course, you've had a hand, uh, as has your wife, in producing all of the X-Men movies. And, you know, they've, they've been very successful as well. Uh, that's, stri- that's strictly her. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I just helped her out in the very beginning um, just to get started. And um, you don't know my wife. She took over and ran with it and <laughs> made it all, um, turned it into an incredible empire. It's quite amazing what she'd done. But it's the second almost renaissance of the comic book movie began with X Men 2000, I think, um, and it's, it's sort of kickstarted because you had the, almost the nadir of the Batman franchise, which could have killed comic books for a quite a lot longer if it hadn't been for X Men coming along at that time. You're right. You're right. You've worked on eight movies, I believe, with Stuart Baird as your editor, and you've obviously formed quite an excellent working relationship there between director and editor. Why is it that you keep coming back to Stuart? Why is he the one for you? Because he makes me look good. <laughs> <laughs> he makes me look like I know what I'm doing. you got to surround and, yourself with the best, haven't you? It's Stuart is incredibly talented, I want to say young man, but uh, everybody's a young man to me. Uh, <laughs> and and he has wonderful taste. He's, he is as accomplished an editor I have ever met or worked with in my life um, as far as the mechanics and the engineering. But more important, he, uh, he has a great sense of humanity. Um, he likes to laugh. Uh, all the things that I like and so um, 99 and 44 100% of the time when he picks a take it's the take I would have picked when we're cutting Um, he can read my mind he does everything in shorthand and as I said he makes me look good and now his daughter is an extremely accomplished New editor. Is that Kate? Honestly, Kate. Yeah. Kate's doing great. And she's she's got all of Stuart's knowledge and, 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 and taste, but she has her extreme um, individuality as an editor, which is so very important. So she's going to run past Stuart in no time at all. <laughs> <laughs> Family legacy. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about you directing uh, William Shatner early in his career and Steve McQueen as well um, before they essentially became the massive stars that they later became and I mean you really have got form in this because of course the Goonies essentially sent a whole load of future film stars on their path to Hollywood stardom how, how did that feel in the sense of to see all of them go on to such great things later on. That that cast. That cast was one in a million. And I gotta give Spielberg a lot of credit for that. Because um, you know, he brought me on the picture. I said, why why are you bringing me on to direct this and produce this when uh, you should be doing this? 
He said, well, I can't. I'm not available right now. And he says, you're, a bigger ki- you're as big a kid as I am. <laughs> so we, we, we kind of had that. And he, uh, he was very active. He had a great sense of, since he wrote it, I mean, he created a story. Chris, Chris wrote a screenplay, but it was all from Stephen's head. He saw those kids. You know, you see hundreds of actors when you cast something like that. And that is done by a great casting director who I can't think of at the moment, but you guys can look it up. We will. Um, and um, and so he narrows it down to two to a dozen, uh, having seen hundreds. And knowing what Stephen wanted and what I wanted, uh, and then we, we meet them and then we put them together. And uh, uh, again... You have no idea. It, it was a delight working with most of them who were unprofessional and had not had much experience in the industry yet. Uh, they they seem to have cleaner instincts and they their minds have been abused. Uh, but you again, you just get the best character or person for the be- for the individual role and. Um, I'll tell you a story about their acting. Maybe you, you know this story. Uh, but uh, I I, uh, I never had kids, and I, I bought humbug to kids. They're <laughs> pain in the ass, and I never wanted to be around them. I mean, I, I have a lot of nieces, and I love them. But uh, this picture uh, took on a whole different life for me because... As we got into it, uh, it was a, a major love affair for me. I fell in love with all of them. They were just great. And in the morning, if I hugged one and didn't hug the other, I'd, I'd get a, a terrible put down. And if, if I happened to raise my voice to one, the others would cry. And it was just amazing. And I started to love kids. And uh, so they, they were teaching me. One, and two things happened. First thing was, um, I had shot about a day or two. And uh, am I talking too much? No, no, two. you go right ahead. Okay. So we've been shot about a day or two. And I looked at Daly and something, I couldn't, something I was missing with these actors. And I didn't know what it was. And I couldn't put my finger on it. And what, that afternoon, all of the kids were in a classroom because we had a, a teacher for them. And I went in to say something. And as I opened the door, I heard this, I call it cacophony, uh, of sounds coming from these kids. And I, I realized they were on a break and they were talking to each other. But when they were talking to each other, they were on top of me, nobody could finish a sentence, and somebody was from there, and they became tangential, and they, it was just, and I said, oh my God, that's the problem. They've been, I've been having them kind of act it out. When, you know, they the script would show this piece of dialogue, and then the next actor would speak, and then the next, and they would wait, they would wait for their cues. So I got them in and I said, here's what we're going to do. I want you to do it like this. And said, what do you mean like this? I said, I just want you to talk. Let it happen. Don't wait. If you got something to say, say it. And they went crazy. And it was <laughs> one. And they taught me this thing. The editor was going to kill me because it was all overlaps. Very hard to cut, but could be cut. And he did a massively beautiful job. Yep. But they taught me something about the instincts and just letting people rant and letting actors have this freedom, this naive freedom. And so that was that. And, and the, love, the love had gone on. And at the very end of the picture, last week, something strange happened in that. I noticed when I came in, it was just, it was very distant. There weren't a lot of emotional motives happening anymore. There were no hugs. They kind of were aloof and they moved away from me. It was a strange first day. 
And I went home and I told Lauren about it. And I said, you know what? Maybe it's something I missed. Maybe I didn't realize it. I guess they're actors. They know the show is over. They have another week to go. And they're thinking about their next movie. And this whole thing is over. It's done. And I was really down. And I shot the last week and the rap party with these kids uh, isolating me. And I said, screw it. I just bought a house on the beach in Maui. Roman was over. I got on a plane. I went to Maui. And first day I was there, a friend of ours who lives next to her, a woman, came over and asked me if I would drive her into the local town, do some shopping. I said, well, take my Jeep. My, my Jeep. I had a Jeep. So I can't drive a shift. I said, oh, God. I'm just <laughs> here. I want to be on a beach. So I took her into town. And the first store ended up then going to the post office. Then the post office was another store. And I'm, it's coming an hour, two hours. And I'm so restless. All I want to do is hit that sand. And uh, uh, in those days, it was smoke a little weed, hit the grass, then hit the sand, then hit the weed. And, um, and so we finally drive back. And uh, I put the car in the garage. And I walk out to the beach, taking my T-shirt off to go swimming. And coming up off the beach into the yard was Josh Brolin. And I looked at him and I said, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> he looked at me and he started to stutter. Well, 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 remember, my mother was going to take me body surfing. I said, this is not a good beach for body surfing. And I see he's not looking into my eyes as he's talking to me. And I turn around and look behind me, and there's the entire cast comes out of my house. <laughs> I'm, I'm in the entire cast. Not only the kids and their parents and their guardians, but the Fratellis, Mama Fratelli, everybody was there. Plus, a kid was there with a video camera taping the whole thing. And what had happened was the week, the last week of shooting, Stephen had gotten the whole group together and told them he would send them all to Hawaii for a week's vacation. <laughs> and to surprise me at my house, so I was always saying, I can't wait to get away from these kids. I'm going to get to Hawaii. <laughs> he said, but if Donner finds out, trips off. <laughs> so that week was the best acting those kids ever did in their lives. <laughs> and it's all off screen. <laughs> it was just wondrous. So this all started from, did I think these kids were going to go on in a, I never thought about it until you asked the question or until it happened. They, uh, they all went their ways. They were going to go away. They're all seemed relatively happy and successful I'm very proud I had the opportunity to be with them that long and help them establish themselves as individuals. Just wondering, yeah, I, we believe us, our <laughs> eyes have been on that ship ever since we started talking. And the lovely poster. And the poster, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, that, that's, that's the one right there. And what's that mask behind you as well, I think I saw? Oh, yeah, there's a mask on the floor, which I used it scare people still once in a while of sloth <laughs> um, one of the things I was going to ask concerning the Goonies is there a temptation to return to those characters now being that people like Josh Brown and Sean Astin have gone on to such great careers and now it, it must be intriguing to come back to them now they're adults and such changed men to kind of tell another Goonie story? Well, listen, we've spent a lot of time over the years, a lot of time and energy with quite a few writers trying to come up with a sequel or a continuation or, and it was really difficult. It never, we never found the right one. It uh, kind of disrupted, that was an entity and, um, at this point, it best be left an entity. There's a there's a show that started in 
the state's called Strange Things. I think you probably have seen it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, um, that's kind of a continuum, if you will, of, of Goonies with a, a, a different way. Uh, I love it. I like it very much. I don't like the supernatural end of it, <laughs> but I love the, love the kids. Um, You've got Sean Aston as well, Beck. We are um, going to um, do a theater of Goonies with a, a brilliant young Englishman named Felix Barrett. If you know Felix, he does the immersion theater where you... No. Uh, he, he did the Doctor Who one over there. He's, he's done quite a few. He has a, one running on Off-Broadway now for five years. He's a genius, funny, bright uh, young, young gentleman. And he, I was trying to do a, a, a New York theater, kind of a, a talk musical. It wouldn't have been, it would have been a bunch of stumbling young people with bad voices to be goonies. And we were in the process when Felix Barrett came to us and said, I love goonies, I would love to do it as immersion theater. There's no proscenium arch, there's no. It's not a theater. It's a. It is a place, and the place happens to be some sort of function going on. Mm. The Goonies, and you as an audience, get brought up into it. There are no seats, and you 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 get involved in the um, in the play. So it becomes extraordinarily personal. Anyway, we're we're right down now to finding the proper location, and hopefully we'll have it on within a year and a half or so. Wow, we'll have to try and get some tickets. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If you're not going to revisit as a film, just try a new medium and like you know yeah. revisit that way because it just it is. People want to live in though that kind of that adventure again, and it's, it's a really great way of redoing it. Yeah, especially in this day and age. Uh, I don't know if you English people realize who we have as <laughs> president. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, as his own people say. The morons coming into the room. <laughs> uh, but uh, we're we're anxious to do that, and that's that'll be a continuing. You will be involved in a a, 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 a Goonies caper action sequence, and uh, the individual in the audience, the individual part of the crowd, will help solve the situation. There's a long-running thing in England called Secret Cinema, which, like, is... Uh, I don't know if you've heard of that, where they've done various big films, like Back to the Future, and um, where you where they rebuild the whole sets and that kind of thing, and you spend uh, the evening kind of wandering around, people are in character, and it culminates in a screening of the film, but it's kind of... It's less immersive theatre, but more of kind of just a... Experience. Experience, mm, yeah. yeah. And so it's ah, becoming quite great. popular, yeah. Yeah. Ah. It's What's it called? Secret Cinema. Secret Cinema. Yeah. No, I'm sure that I do now. It's incredibly popular, so I think 100% the idea of Goonies immersive theatre has legs, definitely. Um, and as you say, with some like Trump uh, basically in the major power in the world, we need to escape into the world of the Goonies to just have some fun and forget about no, all the bad times. You've got it backwards. We're in the world of the Goonies. Take <laughs> <laughs> it into reality. <laughs> just wanted to kind of touch on uh, Leaf Weapon, and uh, that franchise means a lot to, to me as an action movie fan growing up. Um, and I really want to give Leaf Weapon 4 its props, because I just could say that final fight between Jet Li and Mel Gibson and Danny Glover is one of my all-time favourites. I understand that's, that film came together quite quickly, and I think you uh, blew everybody away how quickly you were able to kind of shoot that movie and get it out. We got a call from the studio <clears throat> that they wanted to do four. Oh, great, terrific, we'll, we'll get into it. No, we want to do it now. <laughs> and we needed by. And I said, well, hey, guys, give us a break. He said, can you do it? You know, yeah, if we can get a proper script and everything, maybe. I can't make promises. I'll try. And it ended up, I think it, we we wrote it as we went. Every, I think it was Saturday, the guys would, the writers and 
whoever was involved would come to my house and we'd sit down and write the next week's work. And uh, the shooting was great. We really, everybody was committed and involved. And then when it was over, we were told that we had to be in the theaters 11 weeks from the last day of photography. Wow. That's impossible, but we did it. It was a, a wonderful endeavor. It kept all of us going, made us all very honest. You had to make quick decisions and go by your instincts. <clears throat> and um, it was a hell of a lot of fun making. It really was. I love that action sequence in the end also. It was a stage, but a lot of improvisation. Mm. You'd obviously had a bond with um, Mel Gibson and Danny Glover by then, working on numerous projects. Was it was it a, was there a real shorthand by the fourth film? Was it really easy to get back into into character? It was shorthand by uh, a week into the first film. Mm. Oh wow! I mean, we all we were simpatico from the very beginning, and they were just the relationship between those two guys is a totally amazing on and off screen well it feels like by the time we get to lethal weapon 4 it really does feel like one big family it is it is one big family Uh, i'll give you something i'll give you something for your little podcast thing and that is that as of right now we are inches away from getting the go ahead to doing the final five Wow. I mean, we'd Hell be yeah. very, very excited about that, Dick, extremely. Five, five. When, when it's a story I came up with, 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 with Channing Gibson, the writer who wrote four, and um, just uh, having to work it out with the studio, and if um, everybody steps up and we all get together, we'll make it. Mel and Danny are on board. If they don't, if they don't, if it doesn't work out, at least we try. But there's a good, there's a, the better chance you will see the movie. We've all got our fingers crossed back here because we love the franchise, and it'd be great to see those guys back now. I, I, I got more than my fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we'd love to see where those guys are at, like in today's modern world. Like, is there any kind of uh, hints as to where their characters would be that you can say? Or is it all uh, secret, secret? Uh, no, just it's today. It's today, and it's the last picture. That's all I can say. Fantastic. And now they really are too old for this shit. Well, <laughs> yes and no. <laughs> Not quite. Yes and Look, no. Well, I mean, Mel was still looking in in terrific shape. I reckon he can still do all those stunts. Get getting back to the practical filmmaking. I say. Well, Danny's still in great shape too. Yeah, I'm sure. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing, and um, I'm the only one they're going to have to drag around. <laughs> so, I mean, it's been a long time um, since you last directed Dick. I think it was 16 blocks, and you would. But for this, you'd come back into that director's chair. Am I right? Yeah, I, I, I tell you, um, I was thinking about it for a long time, and I had an idea in my head. And but I never did anything about it. And then, just before the summer, um, I was honored by um, the academy. And at the function, um, Mel and Danny were there, amongst others, and to tell their stories about me. And when I saw them on stage again, the two of them. And the audience loved them. There was a thousand people there that just loved everything they did. And when it was all over and we were driving home with Lauren and I, I said, you know, I think it's time. I think people want to see them and it's time to put them to bed. So I started it then, then I worked on it during the summer. Then Channing Gibson came in to help and he added and, 100% and uh, I think we got a great we don't have a script but we have a story and we're waiting for the studio to say go oh, it's nice to have Channing back on board to just have that continuation from like 4 as well so there's people who know the characters are written from on the fly as well you know it was a real fly by your seat of your pants 
number four. So, yeah, hopefully you get a bit more time to do this one as well. And it feels like the right time for Mel Gibson to return to the character of Riggs. It kind of feels like, you know, between Lethal Weapon 4 and now, he's a lot of life experience. And I, I can imagine that kind of going in to Riggs. I think people, he's kind of like made a big comeback this year with directing Hacksaw Ridge, which was great. And, you know, he's kind of back in moves with Bloodfather and stuff like that. And I, I think to return to an older Riggs now with all that life experience, I think that would come through in the character, don't you? It's perfect. It's perfect. It's perfect. He's where he is in life and where Danny is in life and where life is around them at this point. Um, it's the perfect time. I I can't wait. I, I really can't oh, wait. We're there. There. We're, 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 there. we're booking our tickets now. Me neither. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> is there a film of yours that you feel maybe you'd like to kind of um, recommend to people who may not have seen it? I've, you know, are there any sort of unsung kind of um, gems from your filmography that you kind of wish more people had a chance to see? Yeah, yeah, there's two of them in particular. And that is uh, Inside Moves, <clears throat> which is something I love dearly. And, um, and um, it's called Radio Flyer. Well, it, it's forerunner of Goonies and everything like that when it comes to children, but a whole different perspective and it was a picture that um, um, the studio was very brave to make because it's about uh, parental abuse of a child and um, it turns out to be a wonderful child's experience and a wondrous life that you again live Objectively through them, um, it's two two pictures that I love that I wish they had been seen by more. But um, um, I think they were totally sold wrong and handled wrong. And but everybody's got a story why their picture wasn't successful. Mm. I wish people had seen it. They, they they both have cult followings, which I I love. Yeah, we did try and track down a copy of Inside Moves uh, ahead of this, but it was difficult. It really is hard to obtain in the UK. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's not available, unfortunately, on DVD or Blu-ray in the UK because, funnily enough, we previously spoke to your good friend Bob Salin, and he recommended Inside Moves to us, so we all tried tracking down, but it, it's yeah, it's not available over here, unfortunately. Which is we'd really love to see it. Ah, um. Do we have to send you a, a special type of DVD, or no? We can play. We can play American. <laughs> okay, we'll send one over to you. Oh, oh, well, oh, that, thank, thank you so much. It would be it would be great to see it. I, I've just been reading your biography, funny enough, and the making of Inside Moves, and I I can tell it's a really personal project. So yeah, no, it would be really really yeah. great to see that. Thank you for that, um, Dick. Um, going back to uh, Mel actually in your relationship working with him obviously you made Maverick together and one thing I was going to ask you about that movie is obviously it was an adaptation of a very famous TV show and I was wondering was your kind of reason for directing it being that it was about the only really famous TV show of that era that you didn't direct an episode of? (laughs) You're you're right Uh, maybe that's why I did it because they wouldn't hire me to do the show. I have <laughs> full house now. Yeah. No, it's just that when Mel called me, he said, I've got a strip by William Goldman. Yeah. <laughs> They're a greater writer. Um, and um, he, he said, love you to read it. He said, do you ever see uh, Maverick? I said, okay, sure. So I'm only, so Mel is very quiet and understood. He's well, you know, read it. I read it. I couldn't stop laughing. I loved it. <laughs> Saw great opportunities. And um, I, I, Mel produced it and his company did and they hired me to do it. I was totally um, flattered that they would would think of me, but it, I was thrilled. Gave me that and, and, and Scrooge and things like that. Give me, you have so much fun. It's so... It's a delight to go to work in the morning. You can't wait. Oh, actually, I, actually, I feel that way about just about everything. 
Uh, it's like rare exception. Rare exception. It's a, it's a really good looking movie, Maverick. Vilma uh, Sigmund, like it's it's it, the production value is huge. Like it really comes across. Beautiful, beautiful. I think everyone always has the dream of making a western as well. They always seem like the most fun to get stuck into. <laughs> it sure is. I couldn't wait to make a a feature. Well, you had some experience, obviously directing uh, westerns, but in television with the Rifleman. Oh yeah, Rifleman and. McQueen and a whole bunch of them. But this was a chance yeah. to go on a much bigger canvas, and it's a really kind of, you know, it's re- kind of looking back, harking back to those classic westerns, like widescreen John Ford style. Yeah, no, true, I loved it, loved it. I was just going to say that obviously at the beginning of this interview, we talked about you working with um, William Shatner, who obviously went on to play Captain Kirk, but you've also worked with Patrick Stewart, who was Jean-Luc Picard, obviously, as the villain in Conspiracy Theory. I was just wondering how you came to casting uh, Patrick, who at the time was most famous for playing a you know a very heroic character on television, and essentially casting him against type, uh, which has now happened again with uh, Green Room recently. What made you think he was the right person to play that villain? You just said it. He was the right person to play the villain. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way you cast. I mean, that was just, I mean, I've always liked him as an actor tremendously. Mm. And um, when uh, I read it, and so I think the first, first one of a couple that came to mind and said, oh my God, they're great. Who's available? Patrick Stewart was available. When an actor gets the call and it's something they aren't known for, they must really relish that opportunity as well. I hope so. I mean, you know, that's, that's the fun of it when you work with an actor and he's approaching something different than he's approached before. It's uh, of course you um, returned to Superman. Oh, no, one, go one second, I just want to turn it. <laughs> Fucking freezing. <laughs> <laughs> the heat is now on. Okay, sorry. No, it's absolutely fine. I was just going to say that, obviously, later in your career, you actually returned to Superman, um, not only finally getting to kind of get some of your vision um, of Superman 2 through with the cut that was released on DVD and Blu-ray, but also in comic books working with Jeff Johns, who, funnily enough, is now essentially heading up the DC Extended Universe in movies now, creatively. Have you uh, given him any tips on uh, that, of how to handle uh, Superman and superhero movies? No, I get them from him. <laughs> he's he's the wizard. He's the brain. He's an amazing guy. He's um, thrilled with what he's doing. Uh, but, uh, no, uh, quite honestly, if to work with Jeff Johns. Ta-da! <laughs> there he is. Oh, the Superman t-shirt as well. There you are. Um, Jeff um, Jeff was my assistant for quite a few years and, 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 and a good dear friend. And I'm thrilled with what he's done with it. Um, it... Uh, it's it's amazing what's coming out of that organization, and I give Jeff the credit. He's quite a guy, quite a guy. And then uh, Kevin, oh god, who's running up Marvel? Kevin uh, Feige. Kevin Feige was Lauren's assistant. Oh right, wow. <laughs> yeah, so the two of them are making us look like slackers. But yeah, you did return to recut Superman 2 and was that a cathartic experience for you after all that time yeah very much so it was um, it was a very disappointing experience because Tom Mankiewicz who has passed but is a dear friend and a great writer who really made Superman come to life way I wanted um, and I had plans to uh, finish two obviously and he and I we were writing outlines for three and four and 
we were going to do, Tom, who was also a wonderful director, we were going to work out that I'd direct one and hmm. he'd direct one, and, but we'd write them both together. And uh, But the powers that be in Felton there, um, good taste, decided uh, not to have uh, have me around anymore. It was too bad. So, yes, it was very disappointing to not see <clears throat> two on the screen the way I wanted it. And the way it did appear was by spit and polish. I mean, as you can see, it's pieces of screen tests were used and outtakes and um, it was just really put together with Michael Thaw, wonderful young TV, well, no, he's an ocean picture too, director, editor, uh, did all the work. It was wonderful to see the pieces, but it's very disappointing because you couldn't do the seeds. You weren't allowed to shoot anything. Just put it together. Well, of course, we never finished the film and uh, before, so it was difficult. Um, I'm happy that it was finished. I wish the audience could have seen it the way we originally conceived it. That was impossible. But yeah, happy to see it done. Yeah, it certainly does feel like, a, a, even with those little bits that are test footage and the rest of it, it does still feel like a complete piece. So I think a real good archival job there. Uh, you know, there, there's another one. They're coming out now with um, a lethal, I mean, a um, Superman that's... Oh, the that's, TV cut, yes. Oh, yeah. The three-hour version. It's, it's terrible. Mm. I mean, what it is, is... What it is, is that we... That was an original assembly. It was nothing more than an assembly. Mm. And we cut m most of the bad shit out. And uh, in good taste, the producers decided if we, the, in those days when you sold a picture to television, you sold it by length. The longer the film, the more money they got. So they went back and got somebody, not Stuart Baird, to put all the footage back in that we had taken out. Mm. And um, uh, I probably could have fought it with the Directors Guild at that point, but I was just fed up with them and Ed and everything and let them do it. Now, same thing, in good taste, Warner Brothers TV or whoever the hell stupidly is doing this just took the same shit and, uh, and they're putting it out to... Uh, the audience to make a buck. Bad, bad taste. Such an odd idea, isn't it? Because it, it surely completely destroys the structure of the film. Totally, totally. It puts in silly things that I don't even know why I shot them, but it was on paper, so we did it. And then when you look at it, you realize, say, no, this is demeaning and how it comes. You know, I've seen some of those extended cut scenes in isolation, and it just... When I saw what was what not made the cut, it almost felt like they were on the page and you had the pressure to shoot everything, but I didn't feel like your heart maybe it was in those bits. So, yeah, no, exactly, yeah. So the the special edition, the one that's slightly longer than the theatrical, is your preferred director's cut. Is that right? Right. I was just going to ask, Richard, you started out wanting to be an actor, I believe. Yes, I did. I did. <laughs> in the early days. Um, and then eventually you kind of gave that up for directing and you've had little cameos, I think, in some of your films. Is that ever been anything you've been tempted to return to? Like, give yourself a small role in one of your films or something like that? Like, you know, speaking part? No. No, I can't. I, I, I know myself as an actor. I can't take direction. <laughs> Dick, are you telling me you're not going to be the villain in Lethal Weapon 5? Well, I'm not saying that. <laughs> Could still be surprise casting for that. <laughs> if so, you heard it here first. <laughs> Were there any other projects other than those Superman sequels that you had been developing or that you'd, you'd wish you had the chance to, to make or, or for them to go all the way through? Is there anything like a, a Lost Dream project out there? Years ago, I was developing a a TV Western for television. Hmm. And it, um, it was a, a the TV show was about the derivation of Western towns, how they got their names. 
some of the names are amazing. Wow. They usually from an incident that happened or something that's there, and and I created a character who's writing those dime novels who traveled through the West and would um, and and we would tell the story on how that town, the incident that got the town that that its name that in that sequence. Yeah. And I came upon a town, a county in Texas called Jeff Smith, Texas. It's a famous county. And uh, well, I fell in love with it, and I created a character, <clears throat> who, a young man who was deafened in, a, in the Civil War in a cannoneer attack and uh, lost his hearing and treated with great disrespect as a handicapped person. And, went west to find himself and ended up a gunfighter with great sensibilities. And uh, I never made it because I just moved on into other things. And I told the story to Brian Heldlin, the writer. Yes. Great writer. And uh, hang on a second. I'm getting a note. It says, says, boy, these guys are painting as you want to stay on. No. <laughs> I want to send them a uh, a DVD of Inside Boobs. Okay. Not to find one. Don't right. send my only one. <laughs> I don't have one. <laughs> I think somewhere. Uh, anyway, I told Brian the story and about two or three months later he came in and he handed me a script called The High Lonesome. And it was brilliant. And it was my story, but obviously seen through Brian's eyes, a great writer. And I just never got it made. I, I tried. Uh, Westerns were out of taste. It was this, or was that. It never happened. But coincidentally, it came up in conversation with a producer today that I was having lunch with, and I told him about it. And I think I piqued his interest. So... Maybe it'll get made. Was it the, in the 90s then you first had the idea? No. It was in the um, probably late 60s. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Long gestating project then. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Maybe this is the right time because we're living in the age of cinematic television at the end of the day. So maybe it's the right time to bring that. I'd love to see that happen. Yeah, no, I mean, so do we. We're, we're big fans of the Western genre, mm-hmm. so it'd be great to see you have another crack at it over uh, television, definitely. Um, I was going to ask you, uh, Richard, you, I believe you did work in advertising for a time uh, at some point early on in your career. Is that how you met Bob? Oh, how did I meet him? I, I met him when I came to California, uh, and we had mutual friends. We both met at an evening at their house, I guess, and and we hit it off as friends. And then we worked together. He had a big company doing commercials, and uh, he had directed a film in, I think, in France. And every, he had a good life, and he was doing a lot. We did just I liked him, and um, we had a nice friendship. We still do. We, we like him too and that's why we just want to ask you about that he, he was an amazing interviewee uh, as have you been Dick it's, what time is it there uh, it is quarter past midnight what <laughs> it's the time difference yeah, you see nuts. you must love what you do this was fun I really enjoyed it I had no idea what it was going to be and uh, hopefully you got what you wanted very much so I mean you've given us some amazing material here one other question I wanted to ask you Richard if you don't mind was um, obviously you directed 16 Blocks and I think 2006 uh, and was it a conscious decision to step away from the directing chair for a while at that point yeah it really was I I, I kind of got I had such a wonderful run for 20 years or something with, with Warner Brothers. There were two executives who ran all of Warner Brothers, and then Bob Daly and a man named Terry Semmel. And for 20 years, I made films for them, and and I was officed at, at Warner Brothers, and I made films for other studios at the time. But they were always uh, 
just the best. And at uh, the very end, they retired. And when they did, um, the studio was taken over by people who were anything but filmmakers like, like these two gentlemen. And I just said, uh, you know what? I've had it. I, I, I have, I've been treated too well and too nice and with real filmmakers, and I don't want to go on with this um, corporate mentality. And I said, to hell with it. And I quit it. And found myself loving the fact that I'm not getting up at 5 in the morning. But I, can, I can sleep till uh, 11 o'clock or something. It's just... It was great. I loved it. Well, for and a time, then, you did do it with like a couple of independent studios. Like I think it was Alcon Entertainment who sort of bungled the release, and it must have really rankled with you that that happened that way. Well, I mean, the, the Alcon experience for me was working with a couple of um, no-knowledge uh, studio execs that had no idea on what filmmaking was or what to do or how to do is a terrible experience terrible and so no I was I just really I had the best of it you know and when you have the best of it get out mm. you know you mm. nowhere and uh, I, I saw what was coming the industry has changed tremendously mm. and um, there happens to be a new gentleman named uh, Toby oh god I can't think of his last name who's now running Warner Brothers. And um, it's a great breath of fresh air because he's a real filmmaker, screenwriter and everything, and he's running a studio. Wow. Thank goodness. Maybe the rest of the industry will follow his his moves. But otherwise, goodbye, Hollywood. <laughs> well, in t until Lethal Weapon 5. I mean, you know, that may not happen, but right now it looks pretty good. Well, yeah, we're, we're keeping optimistic over here, but I mean, how have you been busying yourself in terms of it since uh, sixteen blocks? I mean, you still got your office here, and I think you're obviously still very much engaged. Sure, you know, we're doing other movies, doing other things. We've got young creative people here. I love to work with and help them get things started. And um, as long as they don't get upset if I don't come until lunchtime. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so you kind of like try and develop talent, really, in the film industry. Just help out, just yeah. throw in a lot of experience if it helps, and I love doing it. That's great. That's really great. And I mean, I, I think Richard, we've, we've taken up enough of your time, so we want to just say thank you again. Thank you. And obviously, we'll, when this is edited and everything, we'll, we'll send it out to you. Well, I appreciate it. Good luck. Go home to your families, <laughs> and. Uh, trying to get inside moves out to you thanks a lot yeah no, we, we look forward to that yeah. we'll have a screening here yeah. <laughs> okay, thanks guys. Richard thank you cheers right. mate thank bye. you bye bye mates if you enjoyed this episode of Spotlight and wish to support us, you can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at SpotlightPod. You can also get in touch and drop us a message directly by emailing SpotlightPod at gmail.com. 